believe whenever we do come to the realization of God's amazing grace, that it will captivate every aspect of who we are. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to encourage you to open up to the book of Matthew, chapter 7, as we continue to study the book of Matthew. Matthew, chapter 7. We had a uh, Miss Janae and Mr. Chris uh, had my Bible rebound, uh, and such a blessing. Uh, but now I've got to break it in again. It doesn't flop open to the same places uh, that it used to flop open to. So uh, it, it's it's a mixed blessing. Uh, it still has all the guts, which is awesome. It has all the the notes and the highlights and everything that. Uh, but but it's, it's stiff. And I have to break it in again, and so uh, I'm excited about that opportunity to do that. Matthew chapter 7, we're going to read this morning verses 7 through 12. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 through 12. Jesus says, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. To him who knocks, it shall be opened. Or what man is there among you when his son shall ask him for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he shall ask for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you, then being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? Therefore, however you want people to treat you, so treat them. For this is the law and the prophets. Let's pray. God, we do thank you that you do give us that which is good. Lord, even when we don't deserve, Lord, you give us not based upon our merit, but you give us based upon your grace and your goodness and your compassion. Lord, may this morning, may we see your heart. And may we see your grace that has been poured out to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as we study the book of Matthew, we remember that the book of Matthew was written by Matthew, and the book of Matthew was written to the audience. His audience that who he was writing to was to the, to the Jews, and he was writing to present Jesus as the son of David. All right, at least by the end of our study of Matthew, you'll know those three things. Uh, you'll know that Matthew wrote the book of Matthew. He was writing to the Jewish people, and he was writing to present Jesus as the son of David. And in this particular passage, we see Jesus. Now, we understand that in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is very specifically addressing, while he is addressing the multitude, that he is very specifically addressing his disciples. And so as he's addressing, addressing his disciples, he is communicating to them. We just got done talking about last week the the. Uh, attitude of grace and, and empathy that he desires them to have rather than that of judgment. And so we see in Matthew chapter 7, he is now going to communicate to them the importance of prayer, the importance of seeking the Lord, of spending time with him, of asking him, of knocking. And so I hope that whenever you leave here today, that you will see the value in prayer, that you will see the value in going to the Lord, in spending time in that prayer closet, uh, spending time on your knees before the Lord. 
Because the war that we wage is not against flesh and blood, but it is, is it against rulers and principalities of this dark world. And I can promise you, mom and dad, that the enemy is waging war on the souls of your children and grandchildren, waging war on your souls, and you're not going to be able to engage that battle by monitoring their internet usage. You are not going to be able to monitor that battle by, by putting checks and balances on their phones. The battle that we wage and the war that we wage is a spiritual battle and it must be waged in the spiritual realm and that is on our knees. And so I pray that when you leave this place that you will see the value in prayer. All right, let's get into the text. Matthew chapter 7 I want us to skip down to verse 11 because before we understand the value of prayer, I think we have to understand the heart of the God to whom we pray to. Look at verse 11. If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask of him? So there's this contrast that God gives us between the heart of man and the heart of God. He says, if you are evil, and how many of you think that you're evil? <laughs> if we're honest with ourselves, we know our heart, our heart is evil. And that's something that, that, that you say, well, you know, I, I may do some bad things, but I'm not really evil. I mean, when you say evil, you think of, you know, the, the bad guy on the TV show, right? You, you, you think of the villain uh, in the Disney character. I mean, uh, Ursula was evil. Uh, you know, uh, Jafar was evil, Mufasa was evil. Those are, that's, that's what we think of, and all the kids are thinking, yeah, he, uh, uh, and some of our kids are thinking, who? We, th those, those cartoons are so old that, that we don't even realize. But when we think evil, we think villain, we think that which is wicked, and that which is, and the scripture tells us that the heart, the heart of man, is deceitfully wicked. But the contrast, the comparison that Jesus, that, that Jesus is making here in chapter 7, if we're evil and we're able to still give good things and do good things, God is good. The character of God, the heart of God, is that He is good. And not only that He is good, but that He is infinitely good. So, so many times we see God as this tyrant up in heaven with with a, a, a bag of lightning bolts, and he's just waiting to zap us. And, and, and whenever we step out of line, that God's going to get us. We call that grandma religion. If, if you don't do what God wants you to do, then God's going to get you. you know, that, that's, that's this idea, and that's this mentality that we have. And this is very much, uh, my wife grew up uh, Catholic, and I don't want to in any way besmirch the, the Roman Catholic faith, but this is very much a, a Roman Catholic idea that, that, that if you do what's wrong, that, that God is a cause and effect God. That if you do what's good, then God's going to give you good things. And if you do what's bad, then God's going to get you. And that's very much an Old Testament mindset. That's very much a Deuteronomic mindset. It is, it is when we do good things that there's blessings, and when we do bad things that there are curses. That's the Deuteronomic, the Deuteronomic covenant. That good things receives blessings, that our good deeds, our obedience receives blessings, and our evil deeds, that they receive curses. We see God telling Moses that if you honor me, you obey me, you honor my commandments, I will bless those who bless you, and those who curse you, I will curse. But if you do not honor my word, you do not honor my commandments, then, then I will allow your enemies to prosper over you. And we see that in the Old Testament. 
But that is not the way that God deals with us after the cross. On the other side of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, God tells us in His Word that that He has dealt justly with us because of who Christ is, and so God desires to pour out His grace and His blessing. And even in the Old Testament, I want us to see this, even in the Old Testament, in Exodus, God tells us that that, uh, in uh, Moses, whenever, whenever God wallows out a hole and sticks Moses in the side of the rock and, and, and he allows his goodness to pass before. And Moses said, you know, the Lord is abounding in loving kindness and he is, he is abundantly gracious to me and he is, pours out his blessings on, on a thousand generations. We see the goodness of God, even in the Old Testament. God is good. He is infinitely good. So many of us see God as this cause and effect God. But I want us to see God as the scripture tells us, that he is good, kind, loving, caring, compassionate, gracious. The scripture tells us that he is slow to anger, yet he is abundant in his loving kindness. That's how the scripture describes God. Not that God is up in heaven just waiting for us to to act out so so that he can smite us or he can punish us. And so, as we engage life as we walk through life are we going to make mistakes absolutely are we going to stub our toes absolutely are we going to fall absolutely and that's why we can thank God for his amazing grace we can rest in God's grace we can take comfort in God's grace because he is good he is infinitely good. And so, as Jesus is giving instructions to his disciples on how to pray, he says, know this, you can pray to God, and you can ask him for things, and you can come to him, and you can pour out your heart to him, because he is good, because he is gracious, because he wants to bless you. That's his heart. That's his compassion. His heart, that's his, his attitude toward you. His disposition toward you is not that he's mad at you and he wants to get you. He is good. He is infinitely good i want us to understand that every aspect of kindness and goodness in us is a reflection of the goodness of god that's what it says in the text it says if you who are evil know how to give good gifts your father in heaven who is infinitely more good than you are desires to bless you but that tells us also that that whenever we have compassion on someone else have you ever seen someone hurting and wanted just to do something for them. Maybe you didn't know what to do, but you, you, you saw somebody who was maybe going through a loss or maybe going through hurt or maybe going through hardship, and you said, you know, let me, let me just let me go take them a meal. Let me babysit their kids for them. Or let me, let me you know, just stick a $20 bill in their mailbox and, and, and they won't even know where it came from. But I just want to bless somebody. That is a reflection. That is a, a partial, that is a a incomplete and imperfect attribute of God. It is, it is an aspect of the aspect, the aspect of the image of God within you. Any goodness in us is an aspect of the attribute of God in us because the scripture tells us in Genesis chapter 1 that he created us in the image of God, in the imago Dei. And so any goodness in us is simply a reflection or an a aspect of the attribute of God within us. You say, well, I see people all the time. You said people are evil. They are. 
I see people all the time do good things. That's because they have the image of God. Corrupted as it may be, perverted as it may be, distorted as it may be, they still have the image of God within them. And so any goodness, any aspect of, of benevolence in us is an aspect of the imago Dei within us. Now, I do want us to be fair and to, be, to, to understand the whole counsel of God's Word. It does say that, that God is, is slow to anger and He's abounding in loving kindness. The Bible also teaches us that God will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. That there is an aspect of wrath, there's an aspect of judgment that is reserved, listen to this, that is reserved for the enemies of God. Nahum chapter 1, verse 2. Yes, that's a book in the Bible. Let's see if I can find it. Nahum chapter 1, verse 2. It's in here. It's on the screen. It says, the Lord is a jealous God. It's easier to watch it there. The Lord is a jealous God, avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on whom? His adversaries, his enemies. And he keeps wrath for his enemies. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. We see the scripture tells us that God is a jealous God. And look, look at verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. God is indeed a God who has wrath and judgment, but that wrath is reserved for His enemies. I want us to see this. In Christ, Galatians chapter 4 tells us that we are no longer slaves, but we are sons. I want us to see this. God is a just God. He is fair. He is right. The scripture tells us that God, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 21, that God made him who knew no sins to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. The scripture tells us that God placed upon Christ the sin of us. And as sin was placed upon Christ, the scripture tells us that the wrath of God was poured out upon Christ, that the judgment of God towards sin was poured out upon Christ. And so if God poured out his wrath and his judgment upon Christ for your sin and for my sin, God would be unjust to continue to punish you and I for sin that's already been punished. It would be unfair for God to punish Christ for my sin and then to turn around and punish me for my sin. That is an unjust God. It would be unjust for God, just like for my children, it would be unjust for me to, to punish them for something that they did, and then turn around and punish the other child for something that they did as well. Whenever I come home, and the television is laying on the ground and it's been smashed to pieces. And I ask the question, I say, okay, who did this? Who's responsible for the, the television that's been smashed to pieces? And, and they all kind of look at each other, and we've all seen this. They look at each other and everybody knows who did it, but nobody wants to say who did it. And finally, finally the little one says, well, 
we were playing ball, and then the truth comes out. And so we find out that the little girl was in her room the whole time and had nothing to do with it. And so we punish the boy, and we punish the other boy, and we send them to their room, and we give them spankings, and we take everything away, and then we go and tell the girl, and we say, well, you know what? We're going to punish you for this too. She said, I didn't do anything. I was watching Disney Channel. I didn't even know what was going on until I heard the television hit the ground. It would be unjust for us as parents to punish her for something that we've already punished the other ones for. God in His great grace and in His great mercy poured out His wrath and judgment upon Christ. The payment has already been made. The judgment has already been executed. The wrath has already been doled out. And so for Christ to endure the wrath, for God to punish Christ for our sin, and then turn around and punish us for that same sin is unjust. And the scripture tells us that God is just, that He is fair. So I want us to hear this, that God is good, and He is infinitely good. I want us also to see that God desires what is best for us. My little one doesn't like to eat food. He likes to eat snacks. Popcorn and pretzels and chips and animal crackers and he likes to eat that well one of his favorite snacks and i can't blame him for this is funyuns i believe that that whenever god was in heaven one day he was looking down upon the earth and he saw all of creation and he saw that it was good but he saw that it was not good that we did not have funyuns and so and so god by his great grace and by his great omnipotence gave someone the idea to create the funyuns and by the very hand of God, we have this, this perfect snack. Well, Nicholas asked me the other day, he said, Dad, he said, I'm hungry for breakfast. Can I have Funyuns? And as much as it did my heart good to, to hear my little boy want the greatest snack that there ever was, I, I had to say, no, I'm sorry, you can't have Funyuns for breakfast. You have to at least eat something like a Pop-Tart. I mean, something that, 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 that as a dad I can pretend like is, is, is somewhat healthy. Uh, so, so I say, no, you can't have Funyuns. You have to have something for breakfast, either cereal or grits or a Pop-Tart. And so, so, so he says, okay. But why? Why do I tell my kid he can't have Funyuns for breakfast? Is it because I'm mean? Is it because I'm spiteful? Is it because I'm hateful? We already know I'm evil. You know, what, why did I tell my kid he can't have Funyuns? Because I want what's best for him. Because I know that He's only 25 pounds and he's never going to make 26 pounds if he continues to eat Funyuns for breakfast. That it's not good for him. It's not healthy for him. And as his father, I want what's best for him. God wants what's best for you and I. He wants to bless us. God desires to bless us. To bless us is to communicate in a very tangible way that we are loved. Not because of something we've done, not because of any merit in us, but to bless us and to bless someone is to communicate in a very tangible way that they are loved and that you have affection for them. And God desires to communicate to us that He loves us. He desires to bless His people. Not only does He desire to bless His people, but He desires to bless His people by answering prayer. 
Do you realize that, that God wants to answer your prayers? It is woven into the very fabric of God's being that He wants to do good for you. He wants to give you a very tangible demonstration of His love and compassion and affection for you. And He wants to do that by answering your prayers. You say, well, preacher, now you're just grasping at straws. Go to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. That's a lot easier to find than Nahum. Ezekiel chapter 36. Verse 37. Thus says the Lord God, This also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, and I will increase their men like the flock. God desires to increase the house of Israel. That is his heart's desire, to increase and to bless the house of Israel. And what does he say? Let them ask me. And I will do this. God desires to bless his people. He desires to give them a very tangible demonstration of his love for them. But he desires do so to do so as an answer to their prayer. Look at Genesis chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20. God desires to bless his people, but he does so, desires to do so by answering prayer. Genesis chapter 20 verse 7. Now therefore, restore this man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Now this is Abimelech, and this is in in whenever Abraham and Sarah are in Egypt, and God desires to spare Abimelech's life. But what does he tell Abimelech to do? Go ask Abraham. Tell him to pray for you that your life may be spared. The desire of God's heart is to spare the life of Abimelech. What does God tell Abraham to do? Go, he tells Abimelech, go ask Abraham to pray for you that I may grant my desire in accordance to an answer to your prayer. Verse 17. And Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids so that they bore children. That was God's heart. That was God's will. That was God's desire from the beginning. But what did he want to happen? He wanted Abraham to pray and ask God to do what he wanted to do to begin with. Well, that's in the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Matthew chapter 9, verse 38. Matthew chapter 9, verse 38. We see the, Jesus speaking to the church, to the Jewish people, and this is what he says in verse 38. He says, therefore, back up to verse 37, he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. What's he talking about? He's talking about people being saved, people coming unto the realization that they need to surrender their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that they need to turn from their wicked ways and seek my face and hear from, I will hear from heaven and heal their land, that there are those out there in the world, the harvest is plentiful. 
And so what does he tell the disciples to do? Get out there and get to work, right? No. The scripture tells us that God desires all to be saved. The scripture tells us that it is God's heart's desire that, that there be the harvest that's brought in. And so what does God tell the disciples to do? Pray. Beg the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. The harvest is plentiful, therefore go out and work. No! The harvest is plentiful, therefore pray. God desires to bless His people. and He desires to bless His people by answering prayer. God wants to give you what He already wants for you. He wants you to ask. I've shared this before. It blesses my heart so much when my children ask me to do something I already want to do. As a dad, when my kids come to me and they say, Dad, would you come pray with me? That does a father's heart good because I already want to pray for them. Dad, would you read me a story? Absolutely. Because I already want to do that with them. God is the same way. He wants to bless us. He wants to pour out His grace to us. He wants to pour out His goodness to us. He wants to give us a very tangible way of, of how He desires to, to show us His affection, but He wants us to ask Him for it. John Piper has this to say. He says, How astonishing is it that God wills to do His work through people? But it is doubly astonishing that he ordains to fulfill his work by being asked by us. God wants to give us what we want. But he wants us to want what he wants for us. That's a lot of wants. I'm going to say it again. God wants to give us what we want. But he wants us to want what he wants for us. Psalm 37 verse 4 says this, Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. If we delight ourselves in the Lord, if we spend time in God's word, if we spend time in prayer with God, and we align our desires and our wants with his, then it will be what he wants uh, for us. Our desires will not be for the things of this world. Our desires will be for the things that God wants for us. We will desire to be that godly husband. We will desire to be that godly wife. We will desire to be that child who honors his parents. We will desire to be that, that grandfather who nurtures and loves his children and grandchildren. God wants to give us what we want, but he wants us to want what he wants for us. As believers, we are called to labor for that which we cannot achieve. Psalm 127 says this. It tells us that unless the Lord builds the house, he that labor, labor in vain. We can have programs. We can have events. We can have incentives. We can do anything and everything in our power. But unless the Lord Builds the house. He that labor, labor in vain. Our society screams to us 
do more. Have more programs, have more Bible studies, have more events. Visit more in the hospital, knock on more doors. What does Jesus' word say? Ask. Seek. Knock. God's word tells us not do more, but pray more. God's word tells us that our problem in our churches is not that we don't have enough programs. It's not that we don't have enough events for the children and the youth. It's not that we don't have enough enough things going on during the week. I can promise you, church, we have more events and more programs and we are more busy with religion and religiosity. What we don't need is more stuff. The world tells us, society screams, work more, do more. God's Word tells us, pray more. Get on your knees, seek my face, ask and it shall be given. Knock and the door shall be open. Open, seek and you shall find. I want to give you, I want to bless, I want to pour out my goodness to you. But it's not because you do more. Hear that, church. We spend so much time and energy and effort. I go to seminary and I hear professors teach about this methodology or that methodology. You can go to the Christian bookstore and you can read book after book on how to grow the church. We look and we want to model what Rick Warren has done or what Andy Stanley has done or what Matt Chandler has done or pick your favorite preacher we just did this, then, then, then we would do that. No. It's God who adds to the church. Let us beseech the Lord of the harvest. Let us get on our knees before God. Our labor is for something we can't do anyway. And if we do it, then it's not worth doing. I heard a story Billy Graham got on an airplane to go preach a crusade. And as he was on the airplane, man, after a few drinks, came stumbling by to the restroom. And he looked at him and he says, staggering and stammering, he says, aren't you Billy Graham? He says, yes, I am. He said, you saved me five years ago. Billy Graham looked at him and he said, that must be true, because if the Lord had saved you, your life would be different. We cannot do what must be done. We can add people to the roles. We can add people to our programs. But it is the Lord who changes hearts. And the only way that that happens is whenever we as the church will ask. We will get on our knees and we will seek. We will knock where? At the door of heaven. And that door of heaven is not accessed anywhere but on our knees. I think it's interesting. As Jesus walked the face of the earth, there was a tremendous amount of work to be done. There were sick all around him. There were hurting all around him. There were the weak. There were those who were in need. There were lost all around him. And the scripture tells us in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, that Jesus, as was his custom, went away by himself to do what? 
to think up a better strategy to reach the lost. To come up with some program that he could feed all these hungry. To figure out some way that, that, that he could process, that he could, that he could deal with all these prospects and he could somehow proselytize them and get them into the faith. No, what does the scripture say? That with all of the hurting around Jesus, around the God of the flesh, around the creator of the universe, God in the flesh, that Jesus went away to pray. Why? Because he understood that the battle that we wage against is not a battle of flesh and blood. And a sickness and disease strikes this world. And as immorality and pornography and drug abuse and alcohol abuse permeates our lives and our families and destroys our homes, the solution is not a program. The solution is our prayer closets. Jesus went away to pray. If Jesus saw the importance of prayer, how much more do we need to pray? William Wilberforce, who worked tirelessly to abolish the slave trade, wrote this. And I'm paraphrasing. He said, I find myself keeping late hours I find myself neglecting my prayer closet so that I may be about the work that God has called me to. I give myself but a mere 30 minutes or an hour a day to prayer and personal study. And yet I keep late hours into the night working for that which only God can do. May I be more diligent. May I spend two to three hours in prayer that the Lord may do what only He can do. This is a man who said, you know, an hour, two hours isn't enough. I need to spend two, three hours, maybe more. And how many of us are satisfied with five minutes before bedtime or a ten-minute peruse through the daily bread and a quick prayer before we're off on our day? How many of us set our alarms so that we can get up and go to the gym or so that we can get up and, and make sure breakfast is made and make sure the beds are made and make sure the laundry is folded before we get off for our day? But yet we don't attend to the spiritual needs of our heart. So I want to close with this. Have you asked God for your heart's desire? The scripture tells us, ask, seek, knock. Matthew chapter 7 says, if we ask, we'll be given. If we seek, we'll find. If we knock, the door will be open. But we don't ask. We don't seek. We don't knock. Instead, we go about our day as if we can somehow bring the solution to the problems of our lives. Maybe your heart's desire. It's for peace, forgiveness. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Maybe you can't ask, you can't seek, you can't knock, because 
You don't know how to pray. You don't know how to ask. You feel that, that, that I am so wicked, I am so evil, that, that I don't have, I'm unworthy to ask. And you're absolutely right. But God says that He demonstrates His great love towards us. And while we were unworthy, that He loved us and gave Himself for us. It says Ephesians chapter 2 that, that we were children of wrath, but God poured out His grace upon us and no longer calls us children of wrath. We are no longer slaves to sin, but we are sons, heirs to the throne of God in Christ. Not in what we are, but in what Christ has done. If your heart's desires for forgiveness, for grace, for peace, I want to invite you to come. Ask of God for forgiveness. Seek His face. Knock on the door of heaven and it shall be opened to you. Jesus said, all those who come to me, I will in no way cast them out. This morning, maybe God is speaking to your heart. Maybe God has convicted you of your lack of devotion and prayer. Maybe God is begging you to come to the prayer closet. Spend time with Him. Get on your knees before Him. Ask, seek, knock. Let's pray. Father, by your grace, may we see the need for prayer. Your word tells us. Your word tells us that your house is to be called a house of prayer. Or not because we should schedule more prayer services. Not because we should have more prayer meetings, but because you desire your people to commune with you through intimate communication. You desire your people to seek your face because you are good, infinitely good, and you want to bless us. You desire your people to ask because you want to give to us. You desire your people to knock because you want to open doors for us. There's some out there here this morning who've been working tirelessly, effortlessly to no avail. This morning, God is telling you to ask, seek, knock. Whatever the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart this morning, May you find yourself obedient. There's someone out there who this very moment there's peace that you desire. There's turmoil in your heart. You know that if you died today and you stood before a holy God that you would stand condemned. This morning God is calling you to ask for forgiveness. Scripture tells us in 1 John, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. You don't need to confess your sin to me. But we do need to repent of our sin and trust in what Jesus has done. If that's you this morning, if you need peace from the turmoil that's within, may you come. May you ask for forgiveness. And may you find it.
Lord, your Holy Spirit is speaking this morning. May we hear him and may we be obedient. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.